Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. This is the conversation we love to have about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. And we have this conversation with people who identify problems that are uh, very challenging to solve, but also often the solutions uh, to those problems. I'm here with my co-host and my co-founder at Share Strength, also my sister, Debbie Shore. Welcome, Deb. Hi, good to be here. We've got a, a great guest uh, for this conversation today. Uh, Aldor Collier uh, has been a lifelong writer and journalist, uh, and more recently, uh, the CEO of a public relations and marketing firm called Callcom. But uh, Aldor came to our attention because our podcast producer, uh, Paul Woodle, knows him and read a just absolutely riveting article that he'd written, um, that Aldor had written for Harvard Public Health. Uh, the headline is Metcalf Park Inside Structural Racism's Invisible Net. We're going to talk a lot about that over the next 35 minutes or so, but um, that's how we connected with Aldor. And it turns out he's got, an, of course, an incredibly fascinating background and career in journalism. And my sister and I were so grateful, Aldor, that you were willing to take the time to speak with us. And I know all of our listeners in the Share Strength Network will be as well. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Aldor, I was going to ask you to start because I know this will be of interest to our listeners with just a little bit of background uh, about your your own career. I think I'd read on your bio that you actually started a student newspaper in fourth grade, but I know you went on to be also an editor <laughs> at Jet Ebony and uh, have just you know really spanned uh, a lot of uh, journalism in, in your life. Uh, tell us where it started, where just like the interest in reporting and storytelling and writing uh, came from. It sounds like it goes back to your very youngest days. Oh, yes. Fourth grade in South Memphis. Uh, you know, the Collier Cowan, my name is Collier, his name is James Cowan, Collier Cowan daily or weekly is talking to students in the classroom, just, you know, out of, out of boredom relief, pretty much how it started. And also that I, I just love the idea of writing. Always did. Um, even took lots of classes in college in Russian literature. Um, which wasn't my major, but I love Russian lit because I'm just, you know, the writing there was so rich. And also, you know, people like Gabriel Garcia Marquez, I love their writing, you know, the richness of the uh, Latino stories. So writing was always important to me. Um, and when I got to college, I was kind of, for a second, I was not kind of lost. What am I going to do? I was a political science major, minored in history and Russian literature. Um, but I was still writing and taking pictures for the uh, student yearbook there called the, the Syllabus at Northwestern, my alma mater, uh, which has been in the news, unfortunately, lately. But I was, um, you know, working on this staff uh, sometimes. But also, we had a um, my fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha. We had an alternative uh, newspaper that I wrote for just for the black students there because sometimes they felt that their you know stories were not being told by the campus papers and things like that. So we had an Alpha Phi Alpha wave. We just interviewed you know, students around the camp. So I've been doing this um, since 1964. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I was glad you mentioned Gabriel Garcia Marquez I was because I was going to ask you about influences on your writing, whether there were teachers, profet professors, mentors, uh, in addition to those like uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who you who you read and admired. Oh, yeah. So I need teachers. Um, you know, because, you, you know, as a student, you go up and down. But I was pulled aside a few times, like in ninth grade and 11th grade, and said, well, you have a gift of writing, and we want you to keep writing. And I'm like, writing what? You know, right? what? We had to write short stories in class and also write, uh, you know, research projects as well. But I was pulled aside a few times and said, well, no, well, we like your style. We want to make sure you pursue writing on some level. And that's what I made sure I did. Um, but he yeah, has a wonderful teacher who, who saw it. They spotted what I didn't really see in myself. Uh, you, know how, you know how students are. 
you get bored, you do this, you get bored, you do that. And that's how I was. But writing was always at the center for things for me. And um, they made sure I knew to keep uh, pursuing it on some level. For some reason, they all thought I should go to law school, but I just <clears throat> never wanted to be a lawyer. Never wanted to be a lawyer. Because um, even in high school, I was going to go to D.C., where you guys are, because the first school I got into was Georgetown School of Foreign Service. So I'm going to be some high-flying diplomat. Um, <laughs> that's what I was thinking as a 17-year-old. And plus, I just read The Exorcist when I was in 11th grade. So that's what Georgetown came into my uh, consciousness reading The Exorcist. So I'm not sure I want to call him a big influence in my life, but he put Georgetown on my, on my radar. Of course, I didn't go there. I got into Georgetown and Colgate University and Northwestern. And obviously, Northwestern, to me, made the most sense because I thought I could do much more there. But yeah, Marquez was one of my great influences. Um, and some people thought that I was kind of nuts because I loved the writing of Philip Roth. And people said, no, you shouldn't be reading Philip Roth. I'm like, but I love his way of writing. And I thought he got better and better as he got older and older. And of course, James Baldwin, I wanted to write like him. And well, why, why, why should you not be reading Philip Roth? Oh, well, I didn't see, I had no reason to not want to read Philip Roth, but they kept saying his, his books were just too racy, especially one that was, you know, most controversial was Portnoy's Complaint. Yes, people I remember thought that. that was just way too much. And I read that book at the age of 13. And so <laughs> I was told, no, I was calling to the principal's office, you know, you should not be reading Philip Roth. He's just a mature writer. He's, they thought he was a sick man. They thought he was totally sick. You know, I'm like, well, I don't want to say on this show what they said about him, but they said lots of very bad things about Mr. Roth. But I loved his writing and I kept reading him until he died. <laughs> Uh, Eldor, uh, James Baldwin, uh, I've read a lot of as well, but the uh, the piece that I think influenced me the most, and I'm curious if you, I'm sure you know it, it's a short story called Sonny's Blues. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Man, that really hit me when I read it, and I've read it many times since. Really? Did you read Go Tell on the Mountain? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Yes. I read that one three times. <laughs> wow. And that's um, rare for me to read a book three times. Well, I think we've got some similar uh, reading interests. And and how did all this lead you to uh, Ebony and Jet? Because you you're, it feels like your career just kind of like took off and the trajectory was pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, like I said, as undergrad, my major was political science with a minor history in uh, Russian literature. Uh, but I went to graduate school at Northwestern as well in journalism. Because I thought journalism would give me such a wide range of possibilities. That's why I decided to do that and not law. So I said, I'm going to do uh, journalism and see where it takes me, you know, because I can do all kind of PR writing, journalism writing, you know, technical writing. I said, there's so much I can do coming out of uh, Northwestern School of Journalism. Um, but I ended up in Florida first and in uh, Clearwater near Tampa and St. Pete. And that was interesting. But uh, I like the fact that they gave me lots of responsibility. But I think I'm the only black person I ever saw in that whole region. It just felt a little odd for me. Uh, plus, it was not a great big paper, but so I went back to Memphis, my hometown, and worked at the afternoon daily there for a while. And then I saw the two of my co-workers had gone up to Chicago to work for Ebony and Jet. And I really want to get back to Chicago because I did a lot more possibilities up there, me being a much bigger city. And you had lots of magazines and publications that some of my friends had worked for. So I want to get back up there. I could work for Ebony and Jet and also me do some freelancing for help my friends out at the, like the Chicago Reporter. We did pieces on race relations and things like that. So yeah, I'm going to get back to Chicago and see what you know where that would lead me. Um, but I was only there for a year and a half and they sent me to L.A. I mean, I like Los Angeles, but I thought I was exiled to L.A. because I love being in Chicago and just didn't want to leave. But 
LA has been really good and I've been here most of my life now. So that was a, a strange trajectory for me. A lot of my friends kept saying, I'm going to put your number in my book in pencil because you can't stay put. So, um, but I've been, I've been in LA, like I say, most of my life now. But uh, yeah, it was a pretty interesting trajectory and uh, path. But I'm, I'm, I'm happy with it. Well, and, and you've been able to cover such a broad range of subjects. And of course, the one that brings us here today, which I mentioned at the beginning, was this piece published uh, last October in Harvard Public Health called Metcalf Park inside structural racism's invisible net. Um, and I chatted with my sister earlier this morning. I know she's got a bunch of questions uh, for you about it. Uh, before we get into those, let me just ask you, uh, how did you come to write this particular piece? What were you hoping to accomplish and what's the reaction been? One of my good friends from college, Judy Belk, is this uh, president and CEO of the California Wellness Foundation. And she mentioned to me that somebody she knew at Harvard Public Health wanted to write this story about, um, you know, food insecurities. And I'm like, what? I mean, that's just that's, that's everywhere from coast to coast. And she said, well, we know we've at least seen your writing. We want you to try to tackle that story. And so they gave me the number and I called the guy. Uh, I think it's Mike Fitzgerald at Harvard. And he said, yeah, I've seen your resume. So we think you did something you could do. We want to explore, you know, the uh, inequities, you know, in food, housing, et cetera. And, and, you know, I think you could probably find a way to bring it to life. They gave me no real um, boundaries. They said, you know, any, any way you want to pursue it, we'll check it out with you and see how it works. So that's how I am. One of my good friends from high school, Linda Bowen, has a foundation out of D.C. And I've known her since first grade. So I was brainstorming with her. And she said that she had worked with the people in Milwaukee. And she mentioned Danelle Cross. And she thought, I think she'd be great for this story. She's a dynamic personality. She's had these great, horrific times in her life. But she's doing so much to elevate the community. You know, and that's what, um, and so I contacted them and through Linda. And I was able to um, talk to Danelle, her daughter, her neighbors, um, other people who work with uh, Metcalf Park. Um, but when I talked to them initially, when I was hearing from her, but it's horrifying to me. I mean, I'm, I'm older than she is, but the way they grew up or they lived in Milwaukee was just shocking to me. Like, for example, I think Danielle said that um, the first time she tasted salmon was she was 50 years old. I'm like, salmon? That's the first time? Because a lot of people like her think it always comes out of a can. And she didn't know about the importance of drink, you know, fresh water. I mean, that seems so basic, just drinking water. But they didn't, were never explained about the importance, you know, of uh, health. And I guess what really stunned me, and I guess I shouldn't have been, they're pointing out they don't have really um, major food chains in a lot of these black neighborhoods like Metcalf Park. I think they said Pick and Save was the only one that's even near there. And it's not really, uh, you know, there it's not considered top of the line, but I saw the images of what they have in there. So, of course, they see that racism in that as well. Of course, they have, you know, you have black and brown consumers there who have discretionary income, but the uh, product, produce and things like that are not there. And for her to have to ride the bus, three buses to get to places that were stored to have, you know, the fresh foods and things like that that they need, which is shocking. Or they would do like some of my neighbors did when I was a kid growing up. You talk to your neighbors and, and say, who has a car? Can I go with you? That's how my neighbors grew up. My neighbors handled uh, food because we had corner stores, too. But we also had you know, many supermarkets, you know, small ones, little mini ones. But they had things that are fresh enough that I thought were fresh. But I'm not sure. But when I got, you know, to talking to people like Danelle, you know, and hearing them talking about how they still had to buy the processed foods, because as Danelle pointed out to me correctly, they last. 
you cannot keep buying fresh fruits if you don't have where you're keeping them. You know, they don't last but a couple of days. So, Elder, I mean, what you know, I, I read the article twice. I mean, the minute I read it, I thought you're going to be a great guest on this show to talk about this community. And I guess uh, and, and you're, you're describing a lot about the community. But I'm wondering, you know, kind of you went in through the lens of sounds like you went in through the lens of uh, food access being a real challenge. But describe some of the other challenges in the community. And I mean, it sounded to me like there was, you know, there were just insurmountable issues that these community members were facing. But tell us a little bit more about, you know, some of the the housing issues and the unemployment or the employment issues, what people do there for a living. Uh, And, you know, what I came away with wondering was like, what what has to come together in this community uh, for, for example, for access to healthy food? Like what kinds of things would have to all come together for there to be healthy grocery stores in this community? Well, they have to lobby for that, because even in Los Angeles, I've seen some upper-class black neighborhoods had no real grocery stores near them either. You just have to convince these large chains to come in. And I guess what they were pointing out to me was they have discretionary income as well, and yet they still can't get these chains to come in. It's a low-income area that's about 90% black. It's a high unemployment, high-crime area. Um, they are convinced that there's toxic issues. You know, they can't grow things. That's why if you read, read the article, you saw when they try to grow their own vegetables, they had to put them up on, you know, platforms almost because they don't want that toxic soil, which has not been addressed by the city, state, or uh, county. Um, they've all felt that there's something going on there and nobody has been willing to deal with it. So they took the bull by the horn, you know, and decided to go ahead and, you know, put these big old, uh, like that, raised platforms to raise the like tomatoes, okra, uh, things like that, corn, you know, they're doing that. They don't want to have to do that, but they have a difficult time getting um, the attention of city officials. And I called and called the um, city council person, the mayor's office, and I'm still to the governor's office. And I got zero response by trying to reaching out to these people. And the neighbors said they, they were not surprised. But what they have started doing is Danelle has, you know, she's such a dynamic person. You know, they have get rallied their forces. You know, they got people together. You know, now they start starting to fight because I think they understand now the importance of political power and political involvement. She sounds like a born organizer, Danelle. I mean, she oh, comes yeah. from, you know, real experience in the, you know, coming up in the community and somehow just becoming a leader there, which is amazing. And she will tell you that she said, I am raw. I am blunt. <laughs> and she very much is. But that might make her, you know, the force of nature that she is now. What's the, you know, the population of the community? It depends on how you define the borders of the area, because in the immediate area has like roughly about 10,000. Then you get beyond that, it's like, a, you know, like 20, 30, 40. And one of the things that you quote her uh, in the article, and this goes to the point I think that Debbie was making, is at one point she says, we're fighting a million battles at the same time. So, you know, just yes. all of these issues coming together, environmental, health, housing, access to food. Access to medicine medical care. Yeah, there are no hospitals nearby. They have to make sure, you know, they try to stay healthy because it's going to take them a long time because the closest hospital, like, you know, they, if it's an emergency room, it's like almost half an hour. And sadly, I, I'm sure this is a microcosm of you know, a lot of other communities that are probably pretty similar to Metcalf Park. Yes, yes. You know, they're not the only one. Well, I And I think one of the things that makes this article so powerful is while that's true, uh, Deb, what you said, this is, you know, uh, characteristic of a lot of communities. It's also a place where 
the problem in some ways is, is even worse. I think uh, you say in the article that Milwaukee has the worst black poverty rate uh, in the country, according to to some measures. Yes. And that, um, you know, it's just black home ownership, for example, is the second worst in the country after Minneapolis. So you've got something that's both characteristic, but also so um, profoundly off the charts in, in terms of just how how challenging the circumstances are there. Um, when we had spoken before we started to record, uh, Eldor, I asked you what the reaction was that people have had to this. And you said uh, a lot of people have been shocked. And, and, and I want to ask you now, uh, describe a little bit of that shock. And why do you think that is? Are we just, are we just good at hiding poverty in this country? Um, I think they know it's there, but I think when you individualize it, then they, it's a different story. When you see just, just raw numbers, but when you like zoom in on individual people, like in uh, Metcalf Park, it has a different appeal to you. You know, it, it, re- it triggers a different reaction in you because what they are going through is not really, as you mentioned already, unique. It happens in lots of uh, low-income areas. Um, but I mean, I, people who express shock to me with just black and white, not just um, white people, black people, like wait, people who live this way. I'm like, yes, people live this way. And have always lived this way. Um, I was not aware that Milwaukee had such a um, problem with you know black unemployment, black housing, etc. Um, I assumed it was a, you know middle you know mid sized city, and I assumed things are better because you know we you know, as a kid we were trained. I'm from the south. We were trained. Okay, well things gonna be better up north. You know, like this whole thing from the migration from the south to the north back in the early 1900s that things are better in the north. That's what we always programmed to believe. And so, and to read that Milwaukee and Minneapolis have this horrific problem with, you know, the black housing and uh, unemployment, et cetera. I was, um, I mean, I had an exploding of that, but I assumed it was going to be better because we all, you know, as a kid growing up in the 60s, you always are told that there's just the South where everything's, you know, not good. Are you hopeful at all that Danelle's going to be able to make significant difference there? She already is. She already is. Um, she has this power to galvanize. I think that's what's really making a big difference. And, you know, she doesn't mix her words. You know, she's blind. She can be foul. But I guess sometimes that's what you need to get people, you know, off their butts to do things. And she says, she's, you know, she's still keep, keeping the city council, their feet to the fire. She won't let them off the hook. But she's taking things on. Her, she's getting grants on her own for the neighborhood. And I talked to other neighbors and they said they feel way more empowered now as opposed to sitting around like, woe is me. And I think she's, help, she's helping to instill this um, power and the need to get involved. Like, I'm going to do this myself. I cannot sit around waiting for politicians to do this for me. And so it, it seems to be getting better. It's, it's going to be a slow process because, as you know, many cities, you know, when fa- Milwaukee had a lot of factory jobs in the 50s and 60s, and those are gone. And that's happened in a lot of urban centers, uh, but I guess they have not replaced theirs as much with like, like high tech and other kind of commercial ventures. That's what I was being told by some other residents. It's nothing has been replaced there. So they've been waiting to try to get things done. But you can't, I think Danielle will tell you, you can't wait for city officials, you know, to do it for you. If, if you had to pick one intervention point, which is hard given the multitude of problems there, but if you had to pick one intervention point, whether it's housing or food access or employment or what, what would you like what would be the first thing on the list? Employment, for sure. Employment's always got to be because that way you can change housing and food access. We have you know the right kind of jobs. 
but those just don't really exist in big numbers there. And what they have told me, they have to ride, sometimes a lot of them still don't have cars, have to ride three or four buses to get to a job. And that's very tough. And I think a lot of them still do not have, um, you know, the educational infrastructure, because I know when I was a kid, in, you know, in the 60s, I keep comparing myself to them, but I was told over and over, you're going to college. My generation told you're going to college. I went to an inner city high school, inner city grade school, but we went visiting colleges when I was in junior high school. School did to prompt us to understand you were going to college. I'm not sure. I didn't sense that from talking to some of them because they just, I'm not, some of them had that role as me. But like Danielle's daughter was saying, yeah, they're fighting so many battles because she said so many of her friends have been killed. You know, she said she can't, doesn't have time to grieve because it keeps happening. You know, the gang violence. And then if you really, you saw how Danielle had to move because she was trying to report these uh, crack dealers and then she, they firebombed, it'll be Molotov cocktails, firebombed her house. But she still did not move very far. She's still very much involved. But even, I think she would tell you also that, um, Employment is the first one. That's the one you have to address first. But food insecurity is big, obviously, because you got to have access to some kind of food and housing. But I think those two will really alleviate themselves once you get uh, job growth going. So that's the big thing, not the economics, I mean, jobs. One of the things that you, you referenced a few moments ago, but we haven't really focused on it yet, was that for many years, this was a vibrant neighborhood, as you describe it. Uh, with working class families and diversity. And then uh, a number of things happened. The city ended up uh, tearing down a lot of homes to make space for a highway that uh, at the end of the day did not get built. And uh, there was displacement of social networks and uh, a toll on local institutions. Is that where, um, when when I look at the headline, which I thought was kind of provocative about structural racism's invisible net, um, is that where structural racism intersects with, with poverty, with those kinds of governmental or societal decisions? Well, I think it's one of the intersections for sure, because, again, you had, um, you know, jobs in you know, factories, not just breweries, you had other factories that go and had, you know, present in Milwaukee as well. And again, like I said, you know, how like big shoe companies all live Boston, you know, fleeing south or overseas. Every, most every city that have had factory jobs in the north lost them. And that happened everywhere, not just, it's not unique to Milwaukee, but I think the difference is they did not try to come up with solutions to replace what was lost. That's been the problem there. And uh, you have people that sort of stuck. They can't change housing uh, patterns because, again, they feel that, you know, some of them have said to me, where are they going to go? You know, they've been redlined out of other, you know, better housing. And that's another national problem. So, just, again, it's not unique to Milwaukee. But I think what they sense is that um, nothing in 2022 had, was being done, you know, to help that, that neighborhood, that the city and county and state just were, didn't, you know, didn't care. And I think that's why it was important for people like Donnell to try to, you know, push this and get something done because you're going to, you know, you'll make city leaders, you know, pay attention to you if you get involved. And she did say that, you know, they will pay attention to us now. You get involved and it will, you make them pay attention to you. But yeah, they just, you know, the problem is how do you get these jobs to come back in? I mean, they can, you know, think tanks, things, whatever. They want things to come in there, but it's a slow process. And that's what they're trying to do. But at least they're paying attention to it now. At least the neighbors are trying to find ways. They're not sitting there doing like, woe is me. 
they do. They are not embracing that kind of uh, you know philosophy. What was me? They are not anymore. It might have been an acceptance in the past, but I think, but because of Danielle Cross, you know, you know, it's, it's booming voice of hers. People getting off their butts and starting to think about what can I do? Yeah, what can I do? That's what it takes in so many communities, right? Is a uh, inspiring, powerful activist. That's what she is. Well, and and a voice that uh, Danelle Cross has and that you amplified. Uh, so that, to me, that's one of the, the powers of media is to elevate voices that too often just don't get heard. So, you know, so many of our issues, uh, whether they have to do with hunger or poverty, uh, have, have to do with, you know, income and employment and, and uh, all kinds of logistical challenges of how you get food and resources to families who need it. But at the end of the day, uh, the, the, the most powerful way of addressing those is with a voice that gets heard by people who are in a, in a position to make decisions. And I feel like one of the important services of this article was elevating her voice. Oh, yeah, for sure. And like I said, now, and I think the fact that uh, she's getting its attention, you're starting to see city leaders, you know, start coming in that neighborhood. You know, those who never paid attention to them before are suddenly forced to pay attention because of uh, the attention it's been getting, you know, outside of Milwaukee. And it's sad that it had to come to that, you know, that outside exposure to get them to do their jobs. But, um, no, she's getting it done. Um, but, you know, they still have lots of problems to deal with there. And, uh, you know, I would just, again, I'm older than her, and I guess I was just as stunned when they said they had to go and get three shopping carts, you know, and then riding a bus with all these packages to get back, you know, and also having to always go and get these sugary drinks because they last, fruit cocktails, canned peaches, you know, canned apples, canned meat, everything with all the high sodium. She said, she said now she's aware of all of that, that she wasn't before. But again, if people don't have access to cars and grocery stores, you have to get things that will last. It will last a month until they get paid again or get a, well, a welfare check or whatever again. Elder, you, you've interviewed so many interesting people, um, Danelle, one of them, but so many others in lots of different areas, political leaders and entertainers. And um, I'm wondering, you know, kind of how do you make a decision about who you want to talk to? Do you have people on your list that you've been trying to get to and haven't? And just kind of how do you how do you organize your thoughts around who you want to interview next? Um, well, most of my career, I didn't get a chance to <laughs> decide myself when I was working at the newspapers and at Ebony and Jet. Um, I got to do some truly fascinating interviews uh, when I was a staff writer uh, at the paper in Memphis. Where I got to interview the British Prime, former British Prime Minister. Um, and at Ebony and Jet, I got to talk to you know so many people: Tiger Woods, Whitney Houston, Eddie Murphy, um, Dave Winfield. You know, I'm just I can't even think of all the ones I had to do over the years. Um, and I found that, you know, they all, you know, Whoopi Goldberg, you know, she was one of those fascinating people, you know, she can talk about any kind of thing and those kind of things you want to really do. Uh, people try to make a difference because she was wanted to make sure that her celebrities used to push for, um, women's reproductive rights, you know, you know, and I said, well, we can talk about that for sure. But you know, I've had lots of fascinating, uh, interviews and, uh, I get approached, um, by different uh, publications. Like I did Vanessa Williams. Here's a mother's magazine. And I said, we want you to talk to Vanessa Williams because she's a, she's the mother of three kids. You know, at that time there's three, I think she's had more sense, but yeah, they'll come to me and they say, well, can you do this? And I'm like, how do you want it done? They said, well, how do you want to do it? So I get a lot of leeway, but sometimes, you know, you've done by like, who am I talking to? 
and how to, you know, I've learned, I know how to reach them because I've had this long career. And what, what, what makes for a powerful interview? How do you prepare? How do I prepare? Well, you don't know going in, it's going to be powerful or not. Um, I didn't, for one, I didn't expect um, Whitby Goldberg to want to talk about, you know, reproductive rights and abortion, things like that, because, you know, a lot of times their handlers want them to talk about a specific movie project, right? That's what they do. But then, you know, I said, no, no, no. She said, no, I want to talk about this. And it gets off on this beautiful tangent, you know, and you just never know. Let's start with Danelle. I wasn't sure how that was going to go either. But, um, and her friends and neighbors, all, you know, it's just wonderful. So, you know, you, you can go in with one idea and maybe just veer off into another complete direction. And again, that, that, that's, that's good too, because you never know. And that's a good thing. You, you have prepared questions, but sometimes you get those questions in, but you'll see that the subject wants to go in this direction or that direction, and you go with it. Eldor, uh, you may have touched on this at the beginning when you're talking about um, some of the things that uh, influenced you. But uh, speaking of the long career that you just referenced for the uh, 18-year-old who's applying to Northwestern and wants to have a career like Eldor Collier's, uh, what advice would you give uh, her or him? Oh, well, right now, you know, Northwestern in the news for the wrong reasons, but I think they will get a dynamic education there. You know what? For me, I just made sure I stay I read all the time. I've been, a, you know, a voracious reader, and I would recommend that to anybody because you get to school like Northwestern, you're going to be tested. You know, you're going to have to be prepared because, I mean, I took four classes, you know, my first quarter there, and each class had like five books every class, 20 books almost, you know, for a 10-week course. You know, it's like, but it's it's about level of preparation. That's what I would recommend everybody because I was kind of a bit nervous. Like, okay, that's some of we're going up there at eighteen. I'm like, am I going to be ready? But my older sister had gone to Brandeis University up near Boston, and said, you know what? She said, you read a whole lot like I do, and that's going to be an edge. You have the advantage right there of being disciplined to read all the time, and that's what I would recommend to anybody who's considering Northwestern or any other school like University of Chicago, maybe. And I'm assuming that's not just for school, but for your, uh, for a career in journalism as well, that served you well. Definitely, definitely, definitely not just school, but you know, and that's where it all starts though. I think uh, having a discipline to read and read and read. So I'd recommend that to anyone because if you don't, because right now, because of the outside influences like social media, I think kids tend to not focus as much, you know, because it's time consuming. And, you know, younger kids now, when I, the ones I talk to, because I teach at Rio Hondo College here, and those kids, they are, they're programmed by, you know, boom, boom, boom. Images come and go with them quickly. And that's another problem, you know, for my generation, you know, didn't have that. You know, we saw three-hour movies, you know. I would go and see Ben-Hur, Gone with the Wind, things like that, and think nothing of it. But the attention span, you know, it's different now than it was, you know, years and years ago, as they, they'll tell you. So it's a, it's a challenge getting kids to stay focused. But I would recommend that to anybody. Learn to sit down, shut out these outside influences, learn to focus and read. Expose yourself to so many different things you might not have done ordinarily. That, I think, makes a tremendous difference um, for anybody. You know, and I was, yeah, I was a little bit nervous, but it didn't. I wasn't. I had a great time in college. I was not behind anybody or anything like that. So, I mean, it wasn't easy, but uh, it was a wonderful challenge. Well, I've got an 18-year-old heading to college, so I'm going to make sure he listens to this conversation, Eldor. <laughs> uh, as, as we uh, begin to wrap up here, tell us about uh, Qualcomm Public Relations, uh, your work there. Is that a good place for people to learn more about you and your work? They, yes, yes, for sure. Okay, I left Ebony in 2007. I think 
everybody on this call knows that uh, the internet has been killing off jobs left and right in journalism. So it's just been really, really tough. But even when I was at Ebony, I was doing consulting with other people who had their own little PR firms. Um, so I was writing with them and, and you know helping them out, editing for them, because you'd be surprised how many people like college degrees, masters and PhDs who cannot write, who do not understand structure and grammar and punctuation. So I was doing a lot of that. So I struck out on my own in 2007 when it you know, shut down the office pretty much. Um, and um, right away, I don't let me make this uh, have to be wrapping up, but I was asked to go out to Albuquerque because they wanted to put an MLK memorial together there. And they said, but the challenge is he never came to Albuquerque, never visited. So we need to find, you know, find a way to uh, muster public support. So they said, it'd be your job to do that. So I spent two years. They gave me the budget. I traveled around the country. I went and talked to uh, Jesse Jackson. I went to D.C. several times. John Lewis I talked to, Elder Holmes Norton. Uh, John Doerr. I went down to Southern Poverty Law Center. So I got these stories of all of them and how they related to Dr. King. And I put it together and had them all extol the virtues of Albuquerque, you know, make it seem like Albuquerque's a great place. So uh, I did a, you know, 14, it's on my uh, company's website. They can look it up. I'm just My name will come up, callcompr.com. You'll see it. And it shows some of the people I've interviewed and some of the work I've done and I'm still doing. And um I'm trying to get this other piece together soon because I talked to somebody <clears throat> who um, was a foster kid. And, you know, of course, I never, I know there are always issues with that, but now there's a major issue with black kids in the foster system. So I'm looking at uh, trying to do something about that as well. That's my next, hopefully my I next I was just project. about to ask you, as we were talking earlier, what you were working on, but that sounds like a really um, compelling issue. Yeah, I'm trying to get that to come together again by not having been in that system. But I talked to some people saying, you know, it's, it's horrifying, especially as, as a black child in the foster care system, they get sort of lost. Well, we will keep looking for your uh, pieces. We can't wait to read more. And just to remind our listeners, uh, this conversation got started uh, by our producer, Paul Whittle, uh, pointing out to us this very important piece that you wrote for Harvard Public Health called Metcalf Park Inside Structural Racism's Invisible Net. Uh, we've been speaking with Aldor Collier. Uh, you can learn more about uh, Aldor's work at um, CalCom Public Relations. Um, so grateful that you took the time to be with us. Uh, can't wait to continue to follow your career, Aldor. Thanks, Aldor. Thank you. That was great. Great conversation. Thank you. Okay. My pleasure. On behalf of uh, myself, my sister Debbie Shore, our team at Share Our Strength, and our producers at District Productive, thanks so much for listening to Add Passion and Stir. You can go to addpassionandstir.com, find all of our previous episodes, great conversations. You can rate them and rank them and share them with your, with your friends and colleagues. Uh, thanks so much for listening. I'm Billy Shore. Mm-hmm.